Patient, we are not, I'm not going to come knock on your door this afternoon. I got another meeting, uh, so I promise I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to come and, and spread germs in your home. We just want to be able to drop you an email, a card in the mail, and just thank you for being with us. And, and we want to know if there's any way we can minister to you. So if you're one of those folks who've been visiting with us, and, uh, and listen, don't feel like you're alone. I mean, God has been really amazingly gracious to us uh, as we sit around and, and work through it. We've got uh, you know, m- maybe double-digit families who've been visiting with us for the first time and maybe an extended period of time um, since we've been in this uh, COVID experience. So uh, if you've vi- been visiting with us, please uh, make an effort to get that filled out. Also, just want to go ahead and give you a heads up. Two weeks from today, we will observe the Lord's Supper on the fifth Sunday of this month. So we do like to give you guys some heads up on that, just to be aware that we will be doing that. That's going to be, um, oh, they've already, I say they, because I didn't worked out some neat ways that we hope we can do that and, 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 and really have a special time, but at the same time, maintain a degree of distancing as well. You can see other announcements that came out in the bulletin, or excuse me, we don't have those. Um, what do we send? Emails. Those are the things that come electronically. So uh, and if, if again, if you've been visiting with us and you'd like to get announcements and you don't get them, that's not personal. We just don't have your information. So you can go to our website and uh, fill out that information or email our uh, assistant, Autumn Audie, and she'll be happy to get you on the list for those things. All right. Hopefully by now, You've made it to Hebrews chapter 8. Before you stand, I do want to remind you that on Wednesday nights, currently we have children and youth events. Um, and we're not there, I don't know. We don't, let's not call them events. We've got, we've got Bible study and opportunity for them, and uh, it's, it's really been awesome. So if you've got children or uh, teenagers, uh, listen, we'd love to have them participate with us on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. Our teenagers have been meeting for the most part out here in the grass, and our children have been meeting in the gym. So um, that's, uh, that's, those are the opportunities that are available. All right. Am I supposed to announce anything else? We'll go with no. Thank you for being here today. Please stand with me in honor of God's word. And we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 8. Listen, it's not supposed to rain. If it does, I will probably preach through the rain until they make me get down because of the equipment issues. So, uh, you know, you do what you want to do, but all the hardcore people actually stay through the rain. So I just want to put that out there. If you love Jesus, you'll sit in the rain. I'm not saying anything else. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you praise and glory and honor. We are so grateful. 
for the, uh, the incredible weather you've given us today. And uh, even as we praise you for that, Lord, I'm so thankful for the weather and, and opportunities we've had for the last number of months as you have created a good situation for us to be outdoors here. I pray, Father, that you continue to be at work among us. Father, I pray that in spite of our distance, that, Father God, you would draw near to us and that we would draw near to you, and we would do so through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant who died so that we might live. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Listen, before we jump in, um, I, I just want to thank you. I know some of you are watching at home. There's been a few glitches with the video this morning. I'm not sure if they've got it all worked out, but they are working diligently to make all that uh, as, as good as they can. I do want to apologize. Uh, I also just want to thank those of you who are here today. Uh, I, I, I I have had the opportunity to brag on you all repeatedly. As I speak with other pastors and folks in other churches, I'm able just to continue to say, man, the folks at Malvern Hill keep showing up. In spite of us doing all kinds of things in all sorts of different ways, the folks at Malvern Hill keep showing up. And uh, that is no more true on any Sunday in the last six months probably than it is today. What a wonderful crowd we have. And thank you all for continuing to show up and to expect that in the midst of these days that God can still speak, that in the midst of these days that God can still be active and at work, and that in the midst of these days the new covenant that was brought about in Jesus Christ has not been diminished. So I am so thankful this morning for you being here. I'm also thankful this morning for the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. Now the writer of Hebrews tells us that the old covenant was made obsolete by the coming of Christ. What does that mean? No longer do we observe the sacrificial system or the ceremonial laws. Jesus fulfilled the old law and made atonement for his sins with our death. Whoa, for our sins with his death. That's what has been accomplished in the person and the work, the ministry, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has made a way for us. This morning as we consider why is the gospel better... Folks, we could really summarize it this way. The gospel is better because it is the only way. It is the only hope for salvation for all of mankind. This week I read that many Americans who identify as Christians do not understand or at least do not believe the gospel. Why is it that we would claim to be Christian and yet not really cling to the truths of the gospel? Part of the reason for that is that our pride gets in the way. See, the gospel is really simple. The simplicity of the gospel, however, sometimes rubs us the wrong way. The gospel says we can't do it, but God did. Our pride, of course, says there's no way that it's that easy. I'll do my part, and God will let me in. Now, when we think about what Christ has done for us, we think about what has been wrought for us on the cross of Calvary, we don't often use the language of covenant. That's just not a word that's normal in our Christian parlance. And, and as, as, as somewhat abnormal it is in our Christian parlance, it is especially abnormal as we try to consider the power of the gospel and the role, or excuse me, the, 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 the phrase of covenant in language outside of the church. And yet the Bible teaches us that in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a new covenant that's been given to us through the power of God. Now, the Bible speaks of covenant pretty regularly. 
And we generally categorize biblical history into four significant covenants. I should also just, I try to tell you all this when we get there. The introduction is going to be a little bit long this morning. When we get into the points, they're not going to be equally as long. So for those of you that are sitting there trying to figure all this out mathematically, it's going to be all right. We'll not be here until until 1 o'clock, I promise. Maybe 1230, but not 1. But when the Bible talks about covenants, the Bible gives us basically a big picture of four covenants that God has used throughout history. And the first covenant we see is the Adamic covenant or the Adamic covenant. It's the covenant of Adam, which is a little easier way to say that. And in Adam's covenant, we get two parts. The first thing we see is that God created Adam and Eve. And essentially, God said, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth. Now, of course, in Genesis 3, we see the negative side of the covenant, that because of their lack of covenant fidelity, Adam, Eve, and all the rest of creation will experience death and decay. But in the Adamic covenant, we see the promise of deliverance and the existence of God's grace, right? Because there in Genesis 3, after the fall, when God is cursing even the serpent, he says, there is going to be one who will come to rescue us from this body of death. Paul says, woe is me, who can rescue me from this body of death? Well, the answer was given to us all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. There is one who will come who will crush the head of the serpent. So the Adamic covenant has two parts that we see the covenant that comes prior to the fall and the sort of the completion of that covenant post-fall, and in the completion of that covenant, we see the negative aspects, but we also see the hints of God's grace there in the covenant with Adam, that there is going to be one who will come who will crush the head of the serpent. That's number one. Number two, we see God's grace in that the sin of Adam and Eve revealed to them when they sinned, they re, they, they, it was, it, they were, they, um, their eyes were opened so that they could see their own nakedness. They could see their own sinfulness. They could see their own insufficiency. Well, they tried with all of their effort to cover it up with fig leaves. God, recognizing that was insufficient to cover their sin, made for them coverings of animal skin. It was necessary then in that particular moment for the shedding of a blood of a living creature for the sins of Adam and Eve to be covered up. So we see God's grace, and we also see the whispers of what will come in later covenants. So we have the Adamic covenant. The second, we see the Noahic covenant. Now, these things get confusing because we pronounce the words differently when we put the I-C on the back end, right? So this is the covenant with Noah. But if you want to sound really awesome and theological, you don't call it the Noahic covenant. You call it the Noahic covenant, and then you sound really cool, right? But this is the covenant that God has with Noah. Now, of course, we see that God protects Noah. God calls Noah's family to the ark. Then God shuts the door of the ark. One of my deacons prayed just this morning. Brother Henry prayed about how it is that God has brought, and we're pray, or excuse me, was praying that God would bring more people into the to the protection of His ark. Of, of and, and that's that's what happened there that God closed the door. God exercised protection of Noah and his family. But then after the floods subside, we see that God makes a promise with Noah, a covenant, a covenant with Noah that he would never again destroy the world by flood. And of course, he set his bow in the clouds. Now, there's an interesting thing that we sometimes miss because we're 21st century Americans that when God set his bow in the clouds, that bow was pointing not towards earth but towards heaven, right? Now, we see a rainbow and we think beauty, but we don't think 
as hunters and as warriors in Noah's day that would have used the bow as one of their primary weapons. God aims the bow at himself as a reminder to Noah and all who would follow, so be to me if I do not follow through on the promises of my covenant. God says, I put my life on the line. God essentially swears on his own life that he would never again destroy the world through flood. So we see the rainbow as a promise of God's love, but it's a promise of God's love only because God swore by the only thing that he could swear by, which was his own life. God says, unless I were to perish, the world would never do this because there's the Noahic covenant. But also in the Noahic covenant, we get sort of a, a rehashing of the Edemic covenant because Noah and his progeny are to multiply, fill the earth, and, the earth, fill the earth, and exercise dominion. There's essentially a recreation after the washing of the world with water from God's judgment. After that, we see that the world doesn't, of course, fulfill what it should do. People are sinful, and uh, eventually uh, we go through Abraham's covenant, right? And God makes a covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham is that he would make his descendants as numerous as the, the sand on the seashore, but also, and more importantly, through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. From Abraham, we move on to Moses' covenant. There in Moses' covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the Sinai covenant, there on Mount Sinai, God reveals himself to Moses and the people, and God, you ready, writes his law on tablets of stone that he then gives to his people. But from there moving forward, the people are a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And so by the time we get to the prophets like Jeremiah, we have a prophecy of something that's going to follow the Mosaic Covenant, and that covenant is going to be something better because no longer will God's laws be written on tablets of stone, but instead God's laws will be written into the hearts and the minds of God's people. And that promised covenant is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ brings about a covenant that is far greater than anything the world had ever known or could have hoped for. Because in Christ Jesus, we have hope. Now, all of that being said, what hope do we have in the gospel. Believe it or not, I've cut out about half of my introduction just to get where we are. What do we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do we have in this new covenant? What makes the gospel better? The first thing I want us to see is that God has given us a mind to know. God has given you a mind to know. As I mentioned earlier in the new covenant, it's not the law written on tablets of stone, but the law written on the heart of God's people. This is what is promised in Jeremiah 31 and what is reiterated in Hebrews chapter 8, that there's going to come a writing of God's law into the minds or onto the minds of God's people. We have a mind to know. How will that come about? The first thing we must acknowledge is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God through whom we can experience conviction, 
through whom we can experience assurance. The Holy Spirit is given not only for conviction of sins, the Holy Spirit's given for what? The assurance of our salvation. In the Holy Spirit, God is working. The Bible told, or the promise that Jesus gave to his apostles was that the Holy Spirit would come so that he could bring to memory all that Jesus had taught them, right? So um, God has, has given us a mind to know him and to know his ways. But even as we acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit to change minds, we also must acknowledge that the new covenant came about during a time when literacy was increasing in the world. Now, when we talk about history, we call it his story. Now, contrary to what you might learn or hear from some liberal scholar, it's not because it's man's history. It's not woman's history. When we read history, it is God's story. And that's an important thing for us to keep in mind. Now, When we speak of God's story, we acknowledge that God has been working through the ordinary experiences of men and women for all of creation to bring about his good purposes. The Bible says that in the fullness of time, Christ came. Now, what was this fullness of time? Well, it was a fullness through which God in his infinite wisdom knew it was the best time for Jesus to come onto the scene. There's no way that I can know all of the secret things of God. They belong to him. However, we can look at some hints along the way, right? It was during the first century that we see the rise of the Roman Empire, and during this time that we see what we know of as a lingua franca for sort of the first time in all of history. Throughout the entire Roman Empire, there was a common language that was used for commerce and for business and transaction. There was a road system that allowed. And it is during this time that we begin to see the rise of literacy, even among ordinary people. We appreciate reading as something that is normal and easy, but we appreciate it only because we don't realize what the world was prior. Prior to this time... Literacy, now it's still low compared to where we are today, but literacy would have been in the basement, okay? But about the time, by the time that Jesus comes onto the scene, there's the ability not only for the Holy Spirit to implant God's laws in their minds, but God has created a system whereby his people can regularly be taught the things of God, where the people of God can, can, easily, be, uh, can, can, can easily move about and to carry the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the ages prior, knowledge was essentially relegated to a particular class of people who had access to religious texts and religious knowledge. But in the New Covenant, the Word of God is not only available through the indwelling presence of the Spirit, but through the widespread opportunity to read, study, and know the Word of God. Side note here, nobody under the sound of my voice, listening in a parking lot, sitting inside, listening from their home. Nobody within the sound of my voice has the excuse, any excuse, to not know God's Word. Now, that's not me being mean. That's just me being honest. Because we have Bibles out our ears. They're everywhere. And if you don't have one, I'll give you one. But chances are most of you have multiple Bibles in your home. What we need to make sure of is that we know what's in it more than we know what's outside of it. I don't really care if it's wrapped in leather or paper or cardboard or duct tape. The real question is, do you know the Word of God? 
But even if you're not a reader, because I hear that, well, Craig, you're a reader and you don't understand. I mean, I could easily respond with, I am a reader and I don't understand, but really and truly, I'm, I'm not a runner either, but I know that i got to do something so I don't die of a heart attack at 43. But we won't go there. Um, but look, even if you're not a reader, there's too much access to God's Word. You can jump on Amazon and you can order the cassette tapes if you're still that far back in time. You can order the CDs. But look... That costs money. Do you know that you can download for free countless apps that you can read the Bible on your phone, but even more magically, that thing will read to you. It'll read it. You can set it up on the dashboard of your truck. You don't have to have Bluetooth. You can just turn the volume up and turn the radio down, and it will read God's Word. You can ride down the road and hear the law of God being read, or you can ride down the road and listen to the book of John. Folks, we got access to sermons and Bible studies. God has given us a mind to know him. And he's given us a Holy Spirit within us so that we can understand and interpret God's word. It's a privilege and a blessing and one that we should not neglect. What an opportunity we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is the gospel better? The gospel is better because God's given us a mind to know. And side note, not only has he given us a mind to know, he is an unchanging God. So that once we know him, we need not fear that when we roll over tomorrow morning, he'll be different. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One of the great privileges that we have of a closed canon of Scripture And when I speak of a closed canon, what I mean is there is no new revelation of God. What we have from Genesis to Revelation is the revelation of God today and for all time. One of the great blessings of the closed canon of Scripture is that we need not fear that if we obey God's Word today, that somehow or other tomorrow we will be in sin. For the Word of God is unchanging. The gospel is better because God's given us a mind to know. Second thing this morning, God has given us a heart to love. A heart to love. This week I read a message from Charles Spurgeon on on this passage on Hebrews chapter 8. And there in Hebrews 8 it says that he's given us, that he's written his love on uh, on our hearts. Spurgeon was studying not only Hebrews but Jeremiah 31 in the King James And there in the King James, it interprets that God has written his law in our hearts. And Spurgeon just jumps all over this and says, it would be an incredible feat for God to write on our hearts, but only the Holy Spirit of God could get inside of us to write inside of our hearts. God has not only given us a mind to know, but a heart to love. In the New Covenant, the law of God is not working from the outside, but literally from the inside. He gives us what some saints of old referred to as holy affections, a heart to be like him and to love like him. That's what we've been given in Jesus Christ. He changes us. He makes us holy It's been said before that God is more concerned. Let me back up. I have even said before that God is more concerned with our holiness than our happiness. But I think that I'm wrong. See, God realizes what we don't always understand. God knows that our holiness will make us happy. 
So we read in the Psalms, Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor sits in the seat of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. God desires to make you holy, not at the expense of your happiness, but to help you understand your greatest delight. Might you, might you sacrifice some temporary satisfaction or happiness to find holiness? Yes, but you will discover that on the other side of that happiness is a joy you had not yet known. God is interested in our holiness, but it is in our holiness that we will find a heart to love at the greatest degree. God loves us. God loves you. And in his love, he is not satisfied to leave you separated from him. In his love, at just the right time, he sent Jesus Christ. While we were yet enemies, Christ died so that we might be saved. He's given us a heart to love. Has God given you a heart to love not only him, but to love the world around you? I, I, I think that if we took this microphone off the stand and I put it right down here on the ground and I invited you to come up and begin sharing testimony, that many of you would be able to come up and you'd be able to share a testimony of how God changed your heart and you learned to love people who were different than you, how God changed your heart and you learned to love people who are hard to love, how God changed your heart and you learned to forgive. Boy, that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. We shouldn't be surprised by that. This is not only the promise of Jeremiah. Folks, this is the promise of Ezekiel because Ezekiel promised to us that he would take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That's in Ezekiel 36, 26. This is the new covenant we have in Christ, a new heart, a heart that is changed and different and hopeful God's given you a mind to know. God's given you a heart to love. And finally, God's given you a relationship that saves. Now, there's something that we need to acknowledge when we consider the old covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, when God gave that Mosaic covenant, um, the covenant given at, Sam, at Samurai, no, at Sinai, when God gave the covenant at Sinai, um, and, and it's summarized in the Ten Commandments, okay? Now, the Ten Commandments are not the totality of those covenant requirements, but it is the summary. I try to be really quiet because I learned that when I use, this, use a water bottle, everything I use picks picked up on the microphone, and everybody at home hears me gulping, so it makes me a little nervous and uncomfortable. At Sinai, we've got this picture, or, or excuse me, we've got, well, it, it, it is, it's, it's a reality, but I want to give you a mental picture. Uh, the people of God are told to draw near the mountain, but not to get too close. Don't touch the mountain. Because Moses is going to go up the mountain. And they're at the bottom of the mountain. They look up, and they see the storm clouds gather. And they see the lightning, and they hear the thunder and there's fire on the mountain. And God speaks to Moses. And God reveals himself. And God writes the law for his people with his finger, inscribes it 
in tablets of stone. But when God begins to speak, God does not say, if you will do these things, I will be your God. There's a difference because at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue as it's known in the Hebrew Bible, we read these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There is no if. There is no maybe. I am the Lord your God. At no point in this process does he say, if you'll do these things, I will be your God. He says, I am the Lord your God. He doesn't say, do these things so that I will love you. He says, I love you, and as my children, this is how you should behave. When I was in high school, way back in the day, I was amazing. Y'all should have been there. Y'all should see my highlight film. I was not amazing, as it turns out. But I played varsity football in high school and loved every minute of it. We're hoping that we get to play football this year. But on Thursdays, we were given our game jerseys so that, so that the team could wear them to school on Fridays. Most, most schools still do this. Um, but listen, we didn't wait till Friday to put them on. We were proud of that jersey. And when they gave it out on Thursdays, every player walked out with it on when they left practice on Thursday. And wherever you went on Thursday, you wore that jersey. If you went to the JV game, you wore the jersey. If you went out to eat, you wore the jersey. If you went and sat around in your den, you wore it just because you were proud of what you had on. But as those jerseys were given out, coaches and then eventually more seasoned players, upperclassmen, would take a moment at some point to remind everybody of what that jersey represented. Now, nobody ever said... If you'll do right, I'm going to let you wear this jersey. No. It was you're a part of the team. Here's your jersey. But when you put it on, you remember how you're expected to behave. Now, that's sort of a weak comparison, but folks, hopefully it helps you to understand a little bit about what it means to be one of God's children. When you become part of Christ... When Jesus saves you, just as in the Old Covenant, so too in the New Covenant, there is no expectation that if you will do certain things, then God will love you. If you will do certain things, then God will save you. If you'll do certain things, then God will let you be on his team. No, no. The New Covenant looks like the Old Covenant. You are mine. And when you're part of my family, there's an expectation that you behave in a certain kind of way. And that's the relationship that God's given us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11, that we shall know him. Know him. Not know about him. Know him. Now, we're not going to have to know him through a mediator. See, in the old covenant, the people drew near to the mountain, as I said, and they viewed God from afar. But watch. They heard God through a mediator. Do you understand? Moses communicated God's word to God's people. They were at the base of the mountain, but they were not allowed to touch the mountain. They couldn't go up the mountain. As a matter of fact, they were told, don't get anywhere near it. 
But the new covenant, y'all, I want to jump when I say this. The new covenant is so different. And we see a peek into it in the life of Jesus with three of his inner circle of disciples. Not too long before he would die. He takes three and Jesus takes them up a mountain. You remember this? And there on that mountain, Jesus is transfigured. And he meets with Moses and Elijah. And you ready? There with their great high priest, the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed to, God speaks not to Jesus so that they might hear. God speaks directly to Jesus' disciples. And that mountain represents the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because Mount Sinai was the old covenant, but the Mount of Transfiguration is the new covenant. And in the new covenant, no longer need we be forgiven through the blood of bulls and rams because the blood of Jesus Christ is enough. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And his blood is sufficient to cover the sins of all mankind, every man, woman, boy and girl, black, white, Asian, English, British, South American. It matters not from where you come or where you're going. The only thing that matters is that in Christ we are all one. In the new covenant, we no longer stand at the base of the mountain and view God's storm from afar. Oh, instead, we are invited as Jesus' inner circle of disciples onto the mountain where we may meet with God in person. In Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Our sins have been atoned for. And as a result, we can have a relationship not with God's intermediaries, but with God himself. Why is the gospel better? Why do we continue to beat this drum in the book of Hebrews about a better way and a better priest and a better gospel and the only way through Jesus Christ? The gospel is better because the gospel shows God's love for you and for me. Because the gospel is universal in its invitation. Because the gospel is hope. The new covenant in Jesus Christ didn't appear out of nowhere. The Bible is not two stories. It may represent multiple covenants, but those covenants are a part of his story. From beginning to end, a God who created all the while with the intention of bringing about salvation through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, an invitation not to stand at the bottom of the mountain seeing what God has done from afar, but to be welcomed into the very presence of God and to experience intimacy and relationship with him. The children of Israel couldn't make it up onto the mountain. And the reason was because they were not holy they weren't good enough. You understand? It was holy ground. And yet, you've been invited to that holy place. Let's go back to the Mount of Transfiguration, and then we're done. 
Now, we give Peter a hard time, and we shouldn't. And I'm going to tell you why we shouldn't give Peter a hard time, because Peter, I promise, is no worse than any of the rest of us and better than most of us. But Peter looks around and he says, Jesus, this is a pretty good place. <laughs> he, he likes it. i tell you what I'm going to do, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm just a, a fisherman. You know, I, I'm pretty good with my hands. Jesus, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to build a house. I'm going to build a tent, a hut. We'll build one for you, for Moses, for Elijah. <laughs> we'll build a little something for us, too. We'll just all hang out up here. We'll just, we'll just stay here till we die. Jesus says, you can't do that. you got to go on back down. But here's what Peter understood. He understood that in some way that was beyond his simple fisherman mind, he had been welcomed into the holiest of holy places. That he had ascended, you ready? The mountain of God, and there at the summit, had found not Moses with the written law, that he should follow. But instead, he had found God himself with a heart that he could love. It was just as holy then as it was when Moses ascended the mountain. The difference was, through Jesus Christ, Peter too had been made holy. Folks, none of us deserves to climb the mountain of God. But Jesus climbed Calvary's hill so that we might be made pure and holy. Jesus walked a rough path with a cross upon his back so that we might find hope of the path toward salvation. You're not good enough, and neither am I, but Jesus has made a way. This morning, the gospel is better because the gospel is the only hope that you have and that I have to be forgiven for our sins and to experience a relationship with the God who created the entire world. This morning, I want to give you an invitation to know him. One of the things that I'm troubled by with this separated outness that we have indoors, outdoors, all over, is that it could be very disconcerting, very uncomfortable when I give an invitation for anybody to respond. Because there's a long way between you and me, and there's all sorts of things that could happen or people that might see. Can I just tell you today that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough for you? Can I urge you to forget about all the other things going on and to consider today whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have a new heart and a new mind? Can you say with any certainty that if you were to die today, that you would go to be with Christ? If you can't, please, when we stand in just a moment to sing, would you come today? Would you come and let me speak to you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? But then do me this favor. If you're just totally uncomfortable or terrified to walk up here and to speak to me, would you find somebody beside you? Maybe a life group leader, maybe a deacon, maybe a student leader, somebody near you that you could go to and say, look, I just don't think I can walk up there today. 
but I need to meet this Jesus who walked up Calvary's hill for me. There's no longer the need for a mediator, you see. You don't have to have the pastor to go between you and him. You need only to bow before Jesus. And there is hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. And I pray, Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the courage to respond as you would have us to. That we would sing with joy as we are reminded of just how great you are. And that, Father, if there be one here in the parking lot, in the sanctuary at home that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we sing. If you're in the sanctuary and you'd like to pray with somebody, Buster's in there, and he would love to take time to pray with you. If you're out here, I'd love to. Any of our deacons, life group leaders would love to. If you're at home, listen, jump on our website, grab an email address, and shoot us an email because we want to pray for you. We want to show you what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's sing together.